Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and boy, do we have another fantastic guest for you today here on the show. Uh, it has just been an honor and a privilege to be able to do this Veteran Summit special series here on the council. Uh, we are providing information and healing and, and support to all kinds of issues that veterans and, uh, and their families have. And it has just been uh, an incredible journey. And I hope you've enjoyed this journey that we've been on together. Uh, the council has uh, partnered with uh, the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation uh, for this 10-part summit series. Uh, it's dedicated to providing veterans and their loved ones with information, hope, inspiration, and healing. It's a first-of-its-kind summit, and we're exploring cutting-edge treatments and alternative therapies for PTS, traumatic brain injury, moral injury, uh, sleep disturbance, family conflict, emotional trauma, military transition, and so much more. We're speaking with mental health experts, veterans, and their advocates, and we are providing answers, resources, and solutions to bring all of our warriors home. We're starting the dialogue, and we've been doing it for the last few weeks, and I'm hoping you're enjoying the conversation. We want you to come along and learn more about Part 2, which is going to be debuting in November. We're running through September 25th here on www.kuhsdenver.com. KUHS TV, Radio Denver. We are the stream broadcasting from beautiful Denver, Colorado. We're the number one streaming service out here in Denver. And our commitment is to provide our listeners with the best programming in the world with a wide variety of musical genres, DJs, our outstanding selection of talk shows. And we have become one of the most, we have some of the most talented TV radio hosts, uh, I think, in the country. Uh, professionals, pro uh, programming, the people that are dedicated to giving you the quality programming that you deserve. Our reach continues to grow beyond our wildest imaginations as we are becoming one of the most recognized stations, not only here in our nation, but around the globe. Our audience is growing exponentially. We are um, reaching out to six different continents, over 80 different countries. And our mission is to bring quality program that reflects the diversity of our staff and to have honest, grounded, authentic conversations about the many issues which confront our society. So KUHS stands as a beacon of hope in a world filled with a lot of fear, a lot of separation, and a lot of uh, distrust. We want to bring healing, hope, and inspiration to all of our listeners and all of our viewers out there. Well, today's show, we have uh, uh, a guest who has uh, been serving our country for, for many years. And, you know, I loved when I was uh, um, researching and learning more about uh, our guest today, how his dedication, how he... Well, he didn't uh, do things just for the sake of it. He, he recognized that what we do in life, we, we make an impact. And sometimes we don't see that impact. Sometimes what we do in life, especially when you're trying to do the right thing, you may never see the consequences of your actions. It may be something that, you, that shows up two or three generations down. But we do it anyway. We do it with character. We do it with an integrity. We do it with a love and dedication and passion for the people who we serve and the people who we uh, sacrifice their lives to give uh, our, our people, our nation, uh, the freedoms that we take for granted. 
uh, and, and remembering the things that we do take for granted and, and being able to have an honest conversation with the, the people who are willing to sacrifice their lives for those freedoms that we have. And, and we don't know the things that, you know, one of the reasons we do this program or have done this program is because we want to affect lives down the road. We know that people are going to be watching and listening to these shows later on. We know they're going to be impacted by it. Um, and somebody two or three years down might be in desperate need, and this is the exact thing that they need to be able to make it to the next day. And so that's why we're doing this. And, and, and Scott is, uh, has been doing this all his life. He has been leading from the front. He has been uh, guiding and directing men uh, in combat, helping them to survive some of the most very difficult challenges. And he has taken his wisdom that he has gained on the field uh, and has brought it home so that we can utilize these tools and these techniques to better our society because warriors have leadership skills that you can only learn while you're in service and that can translate into our civilian sector, into our civilian world. Our world needs the leadership that comes from, healthy, from a healthy warrior class. So let me introduce to you uh, our very, very special guest today. Uh, his name is Scott Mann. He's a lieutenant colonel, retired. He spent almost 23 years in the Army and 18 of that in special forces and special operations. Scott spent 10 years in 7th Special Forces Group, Airborne, deploying to Central and South America, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Scott is a real estate entrepreneur, public speaker, best-selling author, military analyst, and advocate for veterans and veterans' families. He's written two of these fantastic books. I read this while uh, I was preparing for the show. One is called Mission America, Straight Talk About Military Transition. It's wonderful. I wish I would have had this kind of information when I was transitioning out of the military into the civilian world because I didn't know what, was, what to do. I felt like I was left out in the lurch. I didn't, I didn't have this kind of information. It was critical. Uh, I finally got it 25 years later. <laughs> and then this one here, which is Leading Through Chaos. Uh, surviving and thriving like a green beret. Uh, how do we lead through chaos? We're all experiencing it right now. This had such pertinent, important information for people that are feeling the chaos of the world out there and may not be able to know how to thrive. Outstanding book. And in addition to helping warriors end their voices and tell their story in transition, Scott has written a play and he acts in the play and it's called Last Out elegy of a green beret and founded the company rooftop leadership and that website is www.rooftopleadership.com scott welcome to the council hey charlie thank you for having me <laughs> it's an honor to have you sir it's really an honor um let's get at it could you share just a little bit more about your background scott and why you joined the military and even more specifically, why the Green Berets? Yeah, um, I, I decided to become a Green Beret when I was 14. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a little logging town in Mount Ida, Arkansas. It was a town that didn't even have a stoplight. <laughs> and growing up, uh, my dad was a forester and a firefighter. So we moved all over and mostly in little logging towns. And, and one day, a, a Green Beret walked into our soda shop. 
when I was sitting there, I didn't even know what a green beret was, but the way the guy looked, uh, the way his boots were bloused and all the, you know, just the way he carried himself. And of course that, that funny looking green hat on his head that he took off as he came in, I just knew right then and there, that's, that's what I wanted to do at 14. And I mean, I was a, I was a runt. I was really small, uh, kind of an outcast, uh, always kind of on the outside looking in and, 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 this guy just, he just, you know how when you look at someone, you you can see your future. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those moments. So he ended up becoming a mentor to me over the years. And, and um, he helped me learn more about what, what we call special forces in the Army. And the nickname is the Green Berets. He helped me understand that they're very different than the SEALs. Mm-hmm. You know, the SEALs, in addition to having way better hair than we do, um, <laughs> are some of the, right. you know, they're some of the best in the world at rolling in on a target and taking that target down, and then they come off the target very quickly. Whereas Green Berets, you know, they go into these places, and they're kind of a combination of John Wick, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. You know, they, they're, they're these relationship-based connectors who go into these rough places they build relationships from the inside out. They immerse themselves in the environment. And then they they, they go in with 12 and they come out with 12,000. And I just, I fell in love with that concept. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of that, that kind of Lawrence of Arabia approach. Mm-hmm. And so I joined the army right out of college, uh, ROTC commissioned as a second lieutenant, did a few years in Panama. And then as soon as I was eligible, I went and tried out for special forces, made it and never looked back. That's amazing. And I, you know what, I think uh, because of what you just said, how the Green Berets immerse themselves into the culture, they get in there, they're working from that inside out. I was uh, really fascinated about that. I didn't know that about the Green Berets. And it's, and you know, but you hear about that, you know, the impact that they make. And uh, we just recently had someone who was also a Green Beret. And I'm really impressed about how committed and dedicated uh, those men and women are to the service. And you you spent a, a lot of time in Afghanistan. Uh, you spent multiple deployments there, and you spent a lot of time working with and having to make sure that uh, a lot of different operations were happening all at once. What were some of the big, the biggest things that you learned uh, from your from about leadership when you were commanding special forces there in Afghanistan? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I I, I worked starting my first few uh, decade in, S- in special forces was in Latin America during the 90s, which was a pretty sporting time to be working in Colombia and Ecuador, um, almost as violent as Afghanistan in many wow. ways during that period. And then and then post 9-11 was almost exclusively in Afghanistan multiple times. But what was consistent throughout that, that I learned, Charlie, about leadership was that as Green Berets, every special operations force is different and they excel at what they do. Green Berets are expected to achieve strategic outcomes by, with, and through indigenous people in rough places. So we don't have authority over these places. We're usually outnumbered 100 to 1. We have to literally get surrounded on purpose. And then we work to mobilize those people uh, of their own accord to go up on rooftops inside their own community when they're attacked and stand shoulder to shoulder with us and fight back. And, And that's where the term rooftop leadership came from. And so I would say probably... I learned a ton from these amazing sergeants and, and other officers who I stood on their shoulders for a couple of decades. But what I would say at a high level was I learned how to lead people who were reluctant to follow. Mm-hmm. And that was almost yeah. exclusively through human connection. It was not coercion. It was not elbowing our way into the village. It was not the stuff you see a lot of times in the movies. 
it was it was inspired leadership mm. of one's own free will to go up on that rooftop and endure risk because they choose to do it, not because they have to do it. That to me is the epitome of leadership, and, and it's and it's a hard thing to do. Well, it seems that uh, you were able to successfully do it. I mean, how is it? Uh, you know, how are you able to? Uh, get some of these uh, elders in the tribes to be able to go along with you and to be able to uh, buy into what you were saying. I mean, because they've they've been dealing like within Afghanistan, they dealt with war for, I mean, for decades. And and how were you able to make that possible so that they could start to trust you uh, in a situation where, I mean, they probably have been betrayed multiple times, I would imagine. The first thing I would say is I made a ton of mistakes. Uh, you know, I made a ton yeah. of mistakes and we made a ton of mistakes in the first 10 years of the war. You know, we kind of forgot. I'll, I'll talk at a personal level because I don't want to speak for the whole regiment. I forgot who I was as a Green Beret, that Lorenzian mindset that I mm -hmm. talked about earlier. You know, when they killed one of my best friends, my Ranger buddy, Cliff Patterson, vaping Al-Qaeda on 9-11 in the Pentagon, I spent the next 10 years trying to avenge Cliff's death. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of sat aside that by, with, and through approach and really just focused on walking down as many Taliban as I could. And, and I wasn't alone. A lot of Green Berets felt that way. It was pretty pervasive in our, it was pretty pervasive in our military. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and pretty much any work that we did in those communities of Afghanistan for the first 10 years, let's be honest, was really designed to do one of two things. Either A, find more Taliban to take out, mm -hmm. or to try to, project from the top down a, 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 a way of life in a tribal society that was frankly a modern approach that they didn't want. Mm -hmm. So the first decade of Afghanistan, my experience, was we didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. And then late in the war, we look around and we realize, okay, we're losing. There's more Taliban in the rural areas than when we started. Wow. So we started to get back to our roots and we realized our only chance was to work with and mobilize those indigenous tribes that were still resisting the Taliban. And to do that, we were going to have to take off the body armor, get back to the indigenous clothes, the beard, live in these communities, and help them stand up on their own. That started a program known as Village Stability. I wrote a book about it called Game Changers. And for about 18 months, from 2010 to 2013, we just focused on connecting to the locals and really trying to understand what they valued as a way of life, what they had in place before the Soviets, and looked for ways to help them get back to that. And mm -hmm. really, it was in many ways counter to what we were projecting the first 10 years. And it worked. It wow. worked until we, until we as a society kind of bailed on Afghanistan in 2013. Um, it was working. So it was about connecting them, meeting where they are. Yeah. And, then, and then once you do that, creating that empathy and reciprocity, yeah. and really seeing the pictures in their head, then they start to follow you up to the rooftop. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very much a grassroots, bottom-up kind of approach to leadership. Well, I think that's fantastic, and I think that's one of the remarkable things about your program and, and rooftop leadership, and we're going to get to it here in just a little bit, is this idea of connection and making those human connections and connecting on that level with people and, you know, taking off some of that uh, stove-type, stove pipe uh, hierarchy and really getting to, to be able to connect with them and what's important to them and what they value. And, but before you got to that point, you, you know, you, you had to finish your military service, you retired, and you struggled with transitioning, uh, which many of us go through, certainly I did, um, and it leads to depression, lack of focus, um, lack of purpose, wondering what comes next. 
Scott, how are you able to navigate the challenges that are inherent with military transition? Yeah, again, starting with, I think it seems to be a pattern in my life, starting with a whole lot of mistakes, about 18, 18 months of mistakes. Like you, Charlie, my transition was not good, even though on all outward appearances, it was great. I mean, I retired after almost 23 years. I was a lieutenant colonel when I hung up my boots. I was working on a book. I had a pretty high-paying job as a contractor. My, my marriage was still intact. My kids were still at home. I mean... You know, if you were to apply the metrics that one would think makes for a good transition outwardly, I was good. Mm -hmm. uh, I had real estate investments that my brother and I were doing. But on the inside, pretty quickly, I was falling apart. I was coming apart at the seams. I did not understand the nature of what was happening to me, but I knew something really bad was happening. And in and, and pretty short order, I, um, you know, I lost my sense of purpose and, and, and it just seemed like a downward spiral where I was slowly disconnecting from everything that was around me. Mm -hmm. And um, I was 41 and, I'm at, and I was thinking, I remember thinking to myself, there's nothing else for me at, at 41 years old. Are you kidding me? Like this is, this is, you know, I, I had my dream since I was 14, I achieved it. Now what? Uh, and the next thing you know, I'm standing in my bedroom closet, Charlie holding a 45 pistol in my right hand. And, yeah. and uh, I was not coming out and, and, had it not been for my middle son, Cooper, coming home from school early, um, we wouldn't be having this interview. Right? There's no doubt in my mind. And, and, and for, you know, for, for a range of reasons, I, I, I didn't pull the trigger that day. I found myself back in that closet a couple of more times. And eventually um, I started to figure some things out. And I started to figure out that actually my pain, my struggle, what I had gone through was actually of value to other veterans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so gradually i started to share that story very privately with some guys that were in dark places themselves but it started to open me up to uh a different approach to transition and and kind of setting aside what everybody wanted me to be mm -hmm. and getting back to what i was supposed to be mm -hmm. which is the same reason i joined special forces and when that started to happen i started to reconnect to my purpose started to reconnect to my narrative my story it got better wow. but it was a long painful haul and it nearly took me out i get it oh yes I and mean, when you're when you're saying that and, I, and my heart goes out to you i mean when you're making that transition and the and the inner turmoil that you're going through uh, as you're because it is you know your whole identity has been wrapped around you know the, the service the 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 whatever role that you were playing and now it's 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 unraveling for you what goes next and if you don't know how to redirect that purpose you don't know how to redirect that you can easily get lost and that happens to so many so many veterans and then on top of that you experience combat and so you're dealing with the chaos that comes with combat and there's a lot of chaos in combat um and you've got in combat or in chaos you've got to be able to assess the situation very quickly uh you got to talk to people about what's going on. You got to get the information that's available to, to you because you're going to be making life and death decisions in those environments. And this is something a lot of veterans know as well. And now our world is dealing with a lot of chaos, a lot of anguish, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, which leads to isolation, which leads to alienation, which feels like you're being, you're separated from and what can veterans do right now 
and their families to help mitigate a lot of the chaos that's happening around them. Um, and that's as a consequence of the pandemic and the economic crisis and the social crises that that's erupting in the country right now. That's a great question. Um, the first thing I would say to any veteran about that, really anybody, I mean, that's going through transition and, and that, that chaos is the, we have these things in special operations called imperatives. And that's what guides us through rough times. And, and the first special ops imperative is to understand your operational environment mm -hmm. always. And, and, and I think that's true to what you're asking here is the first thing we have to do is we have to reattune to our arena. We have to understand our operational environment. We have to, in many ways, reconnect and take a look at the human terrain around us and the, and the terrain around us. Mm -hmm. um, it's what I call the churn. You know, uh, we are in this, uh, you, you actually described the environment um, that your streaming station actually addresses. I love that because it's very much aligned with how I talk to leaders and veterans about, about the world we're in, this churn. Mm -hmm. And it's really composed of three things. One is it's the VUCA environment. You might remember that from your Air Force days, of volatile, <laughs> uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? So right. that's our arena. And it's certainly that way now after the pandemic. Then I, I add there's this, there's this triple D social tension of distraction, disengagement, which is lack of purpose, mm -hmm. and distrust. And we all have that in each other. And then finally, personally, we have this thing that Stephen Pressfield in his book, The War of Art, calls resistance, mm -hmm. which is our own self-sabotage, which is, tells us we're an imposter. I don't belong here. You're not good enough. And all of those things conspire to form this just this sea of churn between us and where we want to be. And if we don't recognize that outright, that we are up against, you know, really some challenging arenas right now, mm -hmm. um, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So that's the first thing I would say is recognize your operational environment, recognize that churn that you're in, and then get really clear on your purpose, mm -hmm. your future self, as Dr. Benjamin Hardy calls it, right? And then start to move toward that purpose the same way you did as a veteran. Mm -hmm. It's the same, that part's the same, mm -hmm. with the same audacity, tenacity, perseverance, and it should scare the heck out of you. Um, but, but, but at a macro level, that's what I would say without like bogging down my answer too much more. Well, I think what, what uh, you know, I, I love it, but you're taking the idea that people are not to, not to sacrifice the, the skill sets and the things that you learn as, as a person in the military that these are actually tools and skills that are, can be translated into whatever you do, no matter whether you're working, you know, um, as an employee, as uh, as your own business, as, as somebody who's self-employed, as whether you're working as a CEO. These are skill sets that you have already that can be translated into the environment, the chaotic environment that you have and to to, to bring order to it. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, so think of it this way. I'm, our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey, which focuses on helping warriors find narrative competence as they come home and, and connect with their new world. We've done a lot of research and there's some recent studies out right now that are, that are staggering in what they're showing us about veteran transition. For example, only in one recent study, only about 20% of the jobs that veterans pursue align with what they did in the military. That's, that's pretty amazing. There's another study that shows that an overwhelmingly large number of HR managers and, and, and people managers think that veterans don't have interpersonal skills. 
they lack interpersonal skills. They have a lot of tenacity and, and teamwork, but they don't have the interpersonal skills that they, but that's just, that's a myth, that's a falsity, mm-hmm. right? Or a falsehood. So, um, you know, I think that what we have to look at in terms of our journey uh, in this transition mm-hmm. is there's a good chance that you may not be able to align with what you did in the military, especially if you were a door kicker or something like that. You may not be able to find that that exact replica, but those intangible things that we all learned as warriors, that, 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 that you know, service before self, the teamwork piece, the mission focused piece, those are, and above all, a sense of purpose, mm-hmm. a sense of purpose that we will pursue something bigger than ourselves, mm-hmm. no matter what happens. The, the military doesn't get to keep that, Charlie. And I let <laughs> them keep it, and I bet you let them keep it too, until you went back and reclaimed it. And when we disconnect from our purpose, we stop living, yeah. and, we, and we cannot do that. I agree, you know, and it's part of that warrior ethos, and that's what uh, anybody who's been, uh, you know, and been in, sur- in the service, who work on the front lines, EMT, front first responders, you know, there, there's a sense of, you know, serving your something of a greater cause, and you need to have that. You can't lose that, and you're exactly right. I, I, I gave it to the military when I got out. I, I was searching for it. I was trying to reconnect, and one of the ways that I was trying to reconnect, and I was floundering, was through the arts and I was trying to connect into the arts and being able to, you know, how do I reconnect to my sense of humanity? Where do I go? How do I? And so this is where I found my refuge. This is where I found was in the arts and theater and, and, and being able to reconnect parts of me that had gotten broken along the way. And part of that uh, is something that uh, you have done as well. And, and you've written uh, this amazing play. And it's a fantastic play, and it's called Last Out, uh, The Elegy of a Green Beret, and it is fantastic. I, I was so enthralled. I read it in, like, in two hours. It was so fan- wonderful. And it's a, it's, a, it's a hero's journey. You know, it's a hero's journey moving through that. And I would just love to, for you to, to talk about, for us to talk about this, and what prompted you to write and and perform uh, your play last out. How's that for a midlife crisis? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, honestly, any, coming from you, Charlie, uh, anything that, you know, you, the fact that you even took the time to read the script, a guy with your acting chops, and for those of you watching right now, if you, if you, you know, studying at the Stella Adler Institute, like that is amazing. She is one of, she, to me, she is iconic. And the fact that you studied there and then the Shakespearean work that you did, like it is off the chain. And, mm-hmm. and so coming from you, that means everything. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, I, I did not envision ever something like that happening in my transition. I've never acted in my life. I've, ne- I've written. <laughs> but what I did fall in love with, and I've always kind of been in love with it, is storytelling. You know, I, I come from an Appalachian family. I grew up listening to my grandfather up in the mountains tell stories. I learned the power of storytelling, albeit semi-consciously in special forces, because that, that's something you find across every tribal society. As I wrote my book, Game Changers, and, and started developing a methodology on human connection, story kept coming up at the epicenter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, humans are wired for story. And so um, what I found myself doing after my transition, um, Charlie, was, was a lot of um, storytelling. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and on stage is speaking, trying to bring the experiences 
from the past to the future. And it, and it was very cathartic. It was very healing. I found myself achieving relevance again. Mm-hmm. I found myself putting a, a, a future Scott out there that was, was pretty fun to chase. <laughs> um, but there was still, you know, when my son, Cody, my oldest son told me that he wanted to become a Green Beret, that he was joining the army, he wanted to be an infantry lieutenant, it just hit me like a, a ton of bricks. And, and I thought, man, here we are almost 20 years into this war and my son is gonna go fight the war that I didn't finish for the first time in, in American history. And most of the people in this country don't even know we're still fighting. And, and you know, we've got men and women who, you know, there's always these movies about the first in, mm-hmm. the door kickers and the, you know, but there's never the movie, the, the, the stories about the last out, the men and women who keep going back day after day, night after night, month after month, and the families that endure that. And I thought, I've got to tell this story. So I, I talked to one of my mentors, uh, a guy named Bo Eason, and, and he, he wrote a written a one-man play about being a football player. And he said, you know, you should write a play because it'll heal you. It'll make you feel better, even if it doesn't see the light of day. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of kept coming back. So I, I did. I started playing around with it. It took me two years to get it where it was anything of a semblance for ready for a, you know public viewing. And I read it at a little community theater night in Sarasota, it was, I was super nervous. It was met by a really warm response from the crowd and this call to, that needs to be a real play. So at that point, I told my wife I wanted to become an actor and, and started studying acting in New York under Larry Moss, who I know you know well. Oh yeah, and, yeah, he's fantastic. Um, and started really working hard to become an actor and we picked an all veteran and military family member cast and we put it up, you know, and it took us another year to do that. But the whole thing I wanted to do at the end of the day I wanted to show the power of story told by those who had lived it on the stage to inform, validate, heal, and connect. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it did. I, it, it, what happened afterwards was just a crazy ride, but it's just been beautiful. <laughs> well, I think it was, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, you're speaking about the, power, the healing power of theater, the healing power of, of, of the arts and how writing that, you know, your, your mentor told you how much, how healing it would be. And this was something in my in my studies that was validated. But, you know, the ancient Greeks, this is what they did. Those guys who wrote those plays uh, that, uh, you know, they were they were foot soldiers and they were generals, you know. And so they wrote that and they were they were cast by, you know, the, the veterans, veterans who had fought in their wars in Greece. And so there's always been that power within it. And when you tell a great story like you have here with Last Out, you're getting into the, the nuances that without having any, you know, it, it's like you, you emotionally you're able to really connect in a way that I, in, in many of the plays that I have seen and done, that uh, it's very, very difficult to do, to be able to be that raw and to be able to be that vulnerable to show people what it's really like. And I would love for you to kind of go, um, you know, the play centers around a Green Beret who died in combat, um, is stuck in the netherworld, and he just won't let go of his earthly life. Uh, he's got unfinished business left to do, and I love that you know, because we all feel that as veterans. You know, I didn't finish what I started out doing, and, and there's this, there's, we're, we're kind of stuck in a loop in, within ourselves. And it, could you briefly just share what the play is all about for all of us who are tuning in today? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for that. Um, so when I was writing the play, I, I, I wanted, again, I wanted to inform civilians so that they understood the, the cost of modern war. I wanted them to feel it. I wanted it to be in an Arthur Miller, all my sons kind of way when, mm-hmm. 
um, when the young captain that's come home from war talks about his, his uh, the, the private that gave him his last dry pair of socks, I, you know, the, how you feel that at that gut level. Yeah. Like, I wanted people to feel that in the audience. I wanted them to understand what that was like. And so my writing coaches said to me, Scott, the only way you can do that, the only way this, this will work is Danny, who's the protagonist, the Green Beret sergeant, must die. And he must die very early in the play. And he's and it needs to be an elegy. It needs to be a lament for the dead. Mm -hmm. And it's the only way he can have the conversation uh, that needs to be had. And 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 you know, without it coming across one way or the other. So so I based the play on three team sergeants that I had, none of whom made it home alive. Um, I combined them into one composite character, and all of the stories are true. They're all based on either wow. things that happened to me or the men and women I served with or family members that we knew. And we rolled them all into this composite character. But the essential gist is this. Danny is killed in the first scene. He's ambushed. Uh, he spent his entire life at war post 9-11. You know, multiple deployments to Afghanistan and the gears of war have just grinded and very near his retirement, he's killed. Uh, and uh, shortly before rotating home. Mm -hmm. And now he wants to try to ascend to the warrior resting place of Valhalla, mm -hmm. which any veteran watching this will know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 uh, it's, a, it's it's that Viking you know ascension place, but it really is true in any warrior society. Um, but he can't he can't ascend. He can't. He's holding on to something and he can't go. And so he, he several uh, what they call operators, buddies of his from from the past, come down from Valhalla, who are already have already been killed in combat and they become shapeshifters and they take Danny, they assume the characters of the people in Danny's life who made his heart pump the most blood, the people he loved, the people he hated. And they take Danny back through his life from the time he joined special forces until he's killed so that he might figure out what he's holding on to, let go, ascend and no peace and let go. And, and, and so in that process, you go with Danny yeah. through the entire journey um, and it's a 95 minute white knuckle ride, uh, and until you finally, until he finally finds what he's, uh, what he's holding on to and he lets go. And, uh, it's, it's, um, it's just, um, yeah, it's very personal, mm -hmm. but it's also very universal. It is. It has such a, so much universality to it. I mean, it, uh, the warriors that go all the way back to, you know, ancient times can resonate and, uh, with the themes that are connected to this play. I mean, it, everything is in there. And one of the things that I think, one of the most powerful scenes in the play, uh, for me anyway, was when between you and, uh, and Lynn, uh, right. which is near the end, is, is just loaded with enormous, the enormous emotional cost that these multiple deployments have on so many warriors, so many veterans and active duty military families. The cost, the total, the, the, the quiet and often ignored burdens that the wives and husbands often face alone uh, with the children, uh, with the bills, wondering whether or not they're ever going to see their loved one again. Uh, oh, my gosh. You know, and it, it, this has been going on since there's been war. <laughs> That's why it's such a, a powerful, powerful scene. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what was it like to write that? And, and it must have been difficult knowing that you had experienced it, 
but it was also a window into so many other experiences that so many families are, have had, you know, throughout this, this war. Yeah, so the, uh, I'm really glad that you picked up on the family component of it because that's one of the things that people say after the play is they come up and, and, you, and they're shaken to their core, like in a healthy way, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, they, they, they have gone for the ride. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things they always say is, I had no idea that that's what our military families go through. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea that that is what, and, and you think about it, like my, my, my wife, Monty, who I've been married to for 25 years. She, we were married right when uh, I started special forces training. You know, um, she endured uh, most of our married life in combat. Her son, Cody, was three when the towers fell, and now he's an infantry lieutenant in Fort Benning. Wow. You know, and, and this is what our families, just one example of what they go through. So I wanted to give, you know, Danny is uh, in the set. Mm-hmm. He's torn between his living room and his firebase. Mm-hmm. And as the play picks up intensity, he's bounced back and forth. And when he's in one, he's wishing he's in the other. And at, at some point, he starts to get confused on even which one he's in, which is real. That's real. Um, and it's the same for the family. You know, the family's trying to sort all this out. And so as I wrote this, it was supposed to be a one-person show. And as I, as I started writing and I started having my conversations with my wife about Danny's wife, Lynn, who was very closely based on Monty, she started telling me stuff that I had no clue had happened. Uh, for example, there's a scene in the play now that I added where Lynn watches the news. I'm not going to say too much about it, mm-hmm. but the only dialogue in the scene is a scream and it will put you down. Uh, and it's only like three minutes in length. But um, that happened. That happened to my wife. And I didn't even know. You know, she's telling me this. And so much stuff came up for us. It was actually very turbulent for us as we were writing this. And we realized that we had buried, much like PTS and other trauma, she had buried traumas too. And so we had to unearth these things and, and, and confront them and repurpose that trauma, just like we all have to do as as humans Mm -hmm. and once we did we put that trauma on the stage and we put that story on the stage and it was so cathartic charlie for other married couples for for people's you know kids to sit there and understand why their father had to be gone and um we just we really felt like even our goal you know we had 20 how many was it 28 gold star families that came to this play and sat in the audience at different times and they were the most uh fanatical about the story and the family because they they connected with it so deeply and it was so validating so um yeah that for me was a bit unexpected but it has probably been the most rewarding and gratifying component of this is being able to honor the military family that's beautiful (laughs) wow scott that's really incredible uh and it is you know the the families take such a huge toll with this and they're often the forgotten warriors (laughs) really uh, about the things that they endure. And I love that, you know, the, the catharsis that occurs. And that's one of the beautiful pow- power that is latent within theater is the cathartic element, is the sense that we come together and we watch a story unfold and we can see ourselves in the roles or participate in it and because we've experienced it on some level and which evokes those feelings that are finally able to be purged. Someone understands that we can mourn and grieve together, and that is the, that's the deepest cleansing we can have is the catharsis that comes from, from the grieving of the soul, 
You know, that's what uh, that's what's so powerful about your play is because it's touching on those themes. And I just I want every military active duty veteran and, 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 you know, people connected to veterans to know about this play, to watch it when it comes around, because you're going to be taking this around. You know, I'm sure here shortly you'll be you're touring it, uh, I hope. Yeah, so, so what happened was we, we did the play uh, for the first time on Veterans Day, November 10th, actually, uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. Sorry, 2018. And then it, it was really well received. It was in Tampa. And then there, were this, there was this call to take it on tour. Now, bear in mind, we're a little nonprofit that up until this point has focused on teaching veterans how to tell their story when they transition home. Now, above all, I believe that's probably the most important message out of all this mm-hmm. is that every veteran every person has a hero's journey a mm-hmm. story within them that can serve the world and it's typically tied to trauma yes. uh and 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 i believe that and i think that once we connect to that it's life-changing and life-saving and and i call it the generosity of scars um <laughs> but right but but as far as the play goes we did a full tour we went to 14 cities we did 40 shows wow. we um we did 200 uh, post-traumatic stress interventions with audience members we traveled with our own mental health counselors um we uh, we honored 500 uh, veterans from the stage and their families and we honored 28 gold star families and that was in one year uh, we started with nothing we had no budget we had no funding. We, um, it's our team is a 17-person support team with four cast members. Which we, we did everything by U-Haul. We went 28,000 miles. That's around the globe once with a U-Haul, um, and uh, it was amazing. We ended up on Tom Brokaw. It's streaming on Fox Nation right now. You can go watch it. But unfortunately, COVID, like it did so many other things, shut down mm-hmm. uh, our second tour before we could get started. So we are. We are hoping to get it underway, but if you wanted to watch two things about the play that are very powerful, I'd say one, if you look up my TED talk called The Generosity of Scars, um, I talk about how the play got started and the cast is with me in the red circle and we do scenes. The other thing would be to go to Fox Nation and you can actually, it's for really cheap, you can get a subscription membership and you can watch both the play in its entirety at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, they filmed it right before COVID and uh, also see a documentary on it. That's so fantastic. <laughs> You've really taken this to a whole, I mean, it's, and it's reaching and it's touching and it's changing people's hearts. And, you know, you've talked about this idea of, and you've mentioned it a few times, uh, the importance of storytelling. And, and yeah. you were able to share this storytelling in your in theater. That's one way of sharing stories. Another way is through poetry. Another way is through music. Another way, I mean, these is all ways we've, humankind has shared stories about what's happened to them since uh, we first walked on the planet. Scott, why is storytelling so important to veterans in transition? Uh, Spot on. It's the right question to ask for sure. Um, Now, bear in mind that everything I'm about to say is based on not just my experience with the play, but almost three decades of either doing or teaching human connection in some of the most dangerous places on earth, okay? And so I've spent a ton of time in this life and death Petri dish, finding what works and what doesn't work in terms of moving people to take action. And here's what I found. One, humans are meaning-seeking, emotional, social story animals. That's who we are at a primal 1.0 level. It's our operating system. 
it has not changed in 250,000 years. We must have purpose in our life. We navigate the world emotionally. We live for connection and we die if we don't. And story is how we make sense of the world. Those four things are, 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 are invisible truths. And if you understand that as a transitioning veteran about yourself and the people in your arena, you have a very, very competitive edge in how you move through to your next ridgeline. Now let's pull story apart for a second. There's a ton of recent research that shows that um, story is a the most powerful form of communication and leadership influence on the planet. Hmm. Um, you know, there uh, is a, a recent research that shows that during the uh, the Toba volcano seventy thousand years ago in Indonesia, this cataclysmic apocalyptic volcano goes off. And it takes the human race down to 10,000 people, less than 10,000, wow. right? And, and, and so we're almost wiped out. And, and, they, and a lot of scientists through carbon dating and other things have asserted that that is when Homo sapien emerged as Homo narens, the story animal. And, and, and humans started telling stories for how they survived and navigated the, that apocalyptic challenge. And as a result of that, we started to learn how to make sense of the world through story. We started to um, we started to listen autobiographically to the storyteller. So if if the storyteller was talking about navigating a sea of lava, we literally feel like we've gone through that lava with them, and we experience resolution and ways to to accelerate our learning without actually getting scuffed up. But we feel like we were, and there's this degree of empathy and reciprocity between the teller and the audience, and so year after year after year for tens of thousands of years we've been conditioned to not just you know enjoy stories but we survive because of them mm -hmm. and so the storyteller when steve Jobs says the storyteller you know will lead the universe in the 21st century he wasn't kidding he understood the fundamental transformational power of story and there's just there's all kinds of research charlie that shows that stories heal the brain Mm -hmm. They they allow us to connect to our purpose. They do all of those meaning-seeking, emotional, social things that we need to do as leaders. They close gaps. They move people to action. Mm -hmm. And so the smart money is if you are in transition and you're trying to make your way through the world, you need to really dial into the storytelling skills. It's, mm -hmm. it's the number one thing, I believe, it's the number one transition tool for veterans and, frankly, anyone who's going through change. That's fascinating. I mean, I, when you were talking about uh, the seventy, you know, uh, seventy thousand years ago, and uh, there was a cataclysmic event, and only ten thousand, you know, hum uh, Homo sapiens left on the planet, and it was through storytelling that uh, kept them going. And it just makes sense, you know. Whenever we're going through a, a difficult time or a challenging time or a transformative time like what we're experiencing now, we we want to get it off our chest. You know, we want to we want to share the story. We want to we're trying to 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 and it's a very primal thing that we're doing and that we're engaging in that's so important for our emotional, mental, spiritual and physical health and the and the health of the community as well. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Is this um you know, I, this series is dedicated uh, you know to veterans and their families and uh you know, a lot of times we, we one of the focuses is there, there's somebody out there who's in need of some advice and and who's watching this and who might be on the edge because of their trauma related injuries. What has brought them to the brink? Uh, 
and they don't know what to do, what would you recommend to them who's listening to this, who might be listening to this or watching this later, what they can do right now? First thing I would say is that, um, is know that your deepest scar is probably your greatest gift to the world. Wow. Full stop. It, it, whatever it was that scuffed you up, whatever it was that laid you bare is exactly the thing that you could repurpose in the service of other peoples and change the world. And I, and I believe that to the depths of my soul that the, if you would have told me five years ago that standing in that closet, holding that 45 would, 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 would transform into a Ted talk. that has been viewed over 200,000 times and stopped countless suicides. I would have told you there's no way you're crazy, but that's exactly what happened. The same with the play, you know, the same with other stories that I've told and seen told. I, you know, I think that it's, it's absolutely essential to know if you're watching this right now and you're in a dark place to know that that darkness that you're in is, 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 is one transformation away from saving somebody's life or changing their life. And, and it's really what we were put here to do. We are creatures of struggle. We are, we are born for struggle. But uh, we have to repurpose that struggle. We have to transform the trauma. And um, it's not easy, but, but it's, it is definitely something we can do. There have been so many advancements on, um, on, on transforming trauma and repurposing trauma for anybody who's, who's been through it. Mm-hmm. I would say, you please reach out to us. Reach out to me. 910-584-1474. That's right. Text me. me I, I will too. call you back within an hour right. uh, if you're if you're in crisis. I don't whether veteran or not, uh, because we've got to you know you've got to know that you are not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's at least one person, me, that does not want you to do this. I need you to not do this, and I need you to uh, to stay in the fight. And and there's a lot of people that will help you do it. And there is, and it's also remember that the storm will pass. And these are emotional and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, storms that seem like it's never going to end. They will end. Uh, don't make a, a, a desperate solution when it's a, it's a temporary situation. And there's people out there that are really able to help you to make a difference and, and can, can change your life. Um, in one of your books, you talk about this thing, and I think it's great. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, it's about battle rhythm about getting into a rhythm of life, you know, and I think when somebody's out, you know, and they're in that desperate situation where maybe that they're, they don't see like there's any hope, they're in despair, boy, they're out of rhythm, you know, they're out of the rhythm of their life, they can't, you know, and I, for me, it was like, let me get back to some of the basics, let me get back to some of that, and I think that that's what you were talking about in your book, is this battle rhythm that's innate to us, we have it. Um, could you sp- explain a little bit what is that and how veterans can use that while they're making that transition to uh, yeah, my dad, civilian life? My, my dad, my, it comes from the book Leading Through Chaos, um, and, uh, and I used it to help business leaders and other leaders understand how to, how to fight the long game of this pandemic that we're in right now and not try to just, you know, uh, surge to every fire that pops up. You know, you've got to, you've got to play the long game. And, and I learned that in combat. I learned that in special operations. Um, my dad, who was a, a wildfire fighter, fought the big fires in California and out West for 43 years. He would always tell me when I was a kid, he would say, Scott, everything in life has a rhythm to it. You just have to be still and you have to find it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, fast forward to several decades later when I was in special forces, 
my first deployment over to Afghanistan, uh, 2004, 2005, we were very, very busy. We were responsible for all of Southern and Western Afghanistan. My job was as the operations center director. So I, I, I helped plan, coordinate and, and, and execute every special ops mission uh, that was, was taking place across the country. So I didn't sleep a lot. I spent a lot of time with my friends, uh, you know, commanding and controlling their missions and, and pulling them out of really crappy places. And in some cases, sending them home with flags on their coffins. And it just was a, it was a very long year. And, and I had arrived with all this enthusiasm. I went back home, a shell of a man and uh, found out as soon as I got home, I was going back over and I was going to be responsible for the operations center for the entire country, all the special ops. And, and, and I was leaving in less than 90 days. Mm-hmm. My battalion surgeon did an eval on me, pre-deployment check. He said, you're going to die in this next tour and it's not going to be the Taliban. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, your charts, your levels are off the, off the chain. And if you don't change how you operate, you're, you're, going, you're not going to make it. And so um, I had to really address my own personal rhythm and my own approach to stress and chaos. And what I learned from Charlie was over in Afghanistan, every organization over there, whether you're special ops or not, has a thing called a battle rhythm. And so it's the collective rhythm by which the unit navigates the day, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what's going on around you. So everybody's up at, you know, first shift is up at zero five, you're doing physical training by 5.30, you're in the shower by 6.45, you're eating breakfast at seven, commander's up, they refit nine. It's just this rhythm throughout the day. And it's interesting because you might be doing a logistics meeting while simultaneously, the folks over here are managing three enemy contacts, ambushes, and it's it's surreal, right? But but it's it's indicative of this chaos that's happening currently, but the rhythm continues. The rhythm continues. And so what I started doing for myself was on the second tour was I, I started working on mind, body, and spiritual alignment to where I have these rituals during these sacred times and these sacred places. And I know by your background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I and I started to ground myself in that rhythm. And that rhythm was mine. It didn't matter if I was in a small village, if I was in the operation center, or if not, I was in a you know, villa in Jamaica with my wife on vacation. That rhythm doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And it was a game changer for me. It changed everything. It's allowed me to navigate I don't even know how many crises in my life and um, it's resilience. It's the ability to get up after a catastrophe. It's the long game. So that's what I mean by battle rhythm. And I think every organization, every business leader, every veteran and every family should have one. I agree. I absolutely agree. It is so it made all the difference in bringing order back into my life. You know, if, I, if I'm not if I'm out of order, then my life is out of order. Uh, it's just a reflection of what's going on out here. But if I'm in alignment, like you said, mind, body, heart, spirit, however you do it, how it it, it, it translates into everything else that's going on in your life. It just does. Go ahead. Can I just say something sure. to that too? You made a comment earlier about chaos for veteran transition, and, and I think you know the antibody to chaos is order. You know, Jocko Willing says it in his book, uh, Extreme Ownership, that discipline equals freedom. And he's right. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely right. There's some of these innate things that we bring with us from the military. We need to hold on to them. And one of them is this, this element of regimen and discipline. But so many times I see veterans, they're so ready to be done with that, that they just ditch it and they leave it and they fall apart. Their resilience goes to crap. <laughs> uh, I think it's mm-hmm. when we come into transition, that's the time to double down on our regimen and because clarity 
clarity and purpose, they don't, you don't sit around and all of a sudden get clear. I don't believe that. I believe that clarity comes from the realm of execution, from disciplined rigor and approach to one's rhythm. And then you are gifted clarity by the universe as you move toward, you know, that next thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that is essential for us in transition is once we get a sense of what our purpose is and where we're going, we have to be uber disciplined in our rhythm to get there. I agree. I agree, Scott. Um, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want you to—I want to make sure to give you a, a, a little bit of time here to talk about Rooftop Leadership, uh, your organization, and, and where that came from in your journey, and what what Rooftop Leadership provides for those who may be interested. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, I started the Rooftop Leadership uh, terminology from when we were in Afghanistan, and we had to inspire one Afghan villager at a time to go up on their rooftop and fight back. And it became a collective movement that was briefed to President Obama, President Karzai. It became a mm -hmm. pillar of the strategy in Afghanistan. And it started with the same approach that I teach <clears throat> business leaders and entrepreneurs and veterans now. And it's all about achieving relevance in this time of churn through better human connections. Uh, it's what I call the high stakes engagement process where you learn how to use attunement, life and death listening, narrative competence, and apply it, you know, towards your goals and, and to make those better connections better than anyone else around us. And uh, yeah, rooftopleadership.com. We have all kinds of ways to learn that, study that. We have a, a live event coming up October 2nd through the 4th that's mm -hmm. virtual where we're going to teach leaders how to own their life, their story in the room uh, over a three-day period. And, uh, and we do that twice a year. But there's all kinds of ways to study and work with us to include a ton of free content on our vlogs and other things leading through crisis. Um, and then also I would be remiss if I didn't say the heroesjourney.org, it's plural. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a veteran in transition and you need help telling your story as you come home, please reach out to us because uh, we do a lot of work in that space. That's fantastic. And and the hero's journey, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but it's one of my favorite books is Joseph Campbell's uh, The Hero with a Thousand yeah. Faces. You know, and it resonated so deeply with me as I was trying to grasp and, and, and connect and, and, and make my way through because the return journey is such is the hardest part. It's the hardest part of the journey. And uh, it's it's so great that you're helping others to do that, to write their own hero's journey, to help them along that way. Um, Scott, we've got just a couple minutes. Uh, I want to get ask you one final question before we close out the show. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to thank uh, KUHSDenver.com. KUHS, The Stream. We are broadcasting live here from Denver, Colorado. Uh, beautiful state of Colorado. and But we're broadcasting all across the nation, all around the world to every one of you. Thank you so much, Henry, and everybody who's here who helps us to make this possible. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. And all the audience that listens every week and tunes in, thank you for trusting us here on the council to bring you the best quality programming and shows and, and people out there who are, who are really making a difference. Thank you for tuning in. And also to the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation. Uh, this is the this is part one of the Veterans Summit, uh, a special 10-part series that's running through September 25th, providing information, hope, inspiration and healing we're exploring cutting-edge treatments and alternative therapies hearing pioneering veterans and mental injury experts finding hope for pts tbi moral injury sleep disturbance family conflict emotional trauma 
military transition, and so much more. Part two debuts in November at www.t-saf.org. Um, Scott, if you could just share with us just a little bit about, um, you know, we always ask my guests right before we leave off, is if there is one last thing, one final thing, you know, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? I think it's um, find that one thing in your life that uh, scares the crap out of you, keeps <laughs> you up at night, um, you know, that, that you feel like is just uh, not quite within your reach and go after it with everything you got. Um, if, if I'd learned anything um, in my years, it was from so many brave men and women that I served with who didn't make it home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to think about that a lot. I try to think about, I've been gifted the opportunity to, 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 to chase what scares me and to do things that they never got a chance to do. And, and I think that if any of us want to honor our brothers and sisters who served and we want to, you know, it, it really is to, to find that one thing uh, that, that, that scares you and go do it, pursue it with everything you've got. And, and even if you fail, um, just make it a good run. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Scott, thank you so much, sir, for being on here on the show. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on. Also look out for his play last out elegy of a green beret. Fantastic, fantastic play folks. Thank you so much for tuning into the council today. We will be back next week with a, another amazing guest on this journey here on the Veteran Summit special series. The council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. We'll be back next week. God bless. Have a wonderful weekend. Under